Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today's book is This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color. It's an anthology of essays, letters, and poetry by Black, Native American, Asian American, and Latina women, some of whom identify as lesbian. It was edited by Cherie Moraga and Gloria Ansaldua and published in 1981. I had never read a book like this before, and because all the essays are written in the first person and based on these authors' real lives and their thoughts and feelings and hopes and anger and grief, I had the sense of sitting next to them or reading their diaries, and it was sometimes uncomfortable, and I'm so grateful for that discomfort because it expanded the borders of my understanding and it helped me think about some things differently and it increased my empathy. And I'm not really someone who's lived in a bubble. I've lived abroad in several different countries. I speak Spanish. I have many close friends in South America. I'm really, really lucky to have a circle of friends that includes lots of different people from different backgrounds. And yet even then, with this book, I found myself constantly pushed to learn and to consider new points of view. And I really felt my heart and my mind grow so much. So I highly recommend reading this book in its entirety to listeners. It was really, really life-changing. And I'm so excited to discuss it today with my reading partner, Jen Lee Smith. Hi, Jen. Hi, Amy. It's so great to be with you. It's so great to have you here. I'm so excited about this this conversation. Um, and the next the next step is just to introduce the um, the book itself and its editors. So I'll talk a little bit about Sheree Moraga and Gloria Ansaldua. Sheree Moraga. She was born in 1952 in Los Angeles, California, and she's a Chicana writer, a feminist activist, poet, essayist, and playwright. And I'll just throw in here, too, um, that the term Chicana is the feminine form of Chicano, and it specifically refers to a U.S. citizen of Mexican descent. And so that's it's more specific than the term Latino or Latina, which incorporates like all of Latin America. Chicana means Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. Um, so she attended Immaculate Heart College in Los Angeles, gaining a bachelor's degree in English in 1974. Soon after attending, she enrolled in a writing class at the Women's Building and produced her first lesbian poems. In 1977, she moved to San Francisco, where she supported herself as a waitress, becoming politically active as a burgeoning feminist, and she discovered the feminism of women of color. She earned her master's degree in feminist writings from San Francisco State University in 1980, and she's a part of the faculty at the University of California, Santa Barbara, in the Department of English. Um, and Sheree Moraga is also a founding member of the social justice activist group La Red Chicana Indígena. And La Red means the net, so like a net of indigenous and Chicana writers. Um, it's an organization of Chicanas fighting for education, culture rights, and indigenous rights. 
Gloria Ansaldúa was born in 1942 in South Texas, and she's an American scholar of Chicana cultural theory, feminist theory, and queer theory. She graduated as valedictorian of her high school, and in 1968, she received a BA in English, Art, and Secondary Education from the University of Texas Pan American. She then earned an MA in English and Education from the University of Texas at Austin. And she loosely based her best-known book, which is Borderlands, La Frontera, The New Mestiza, on her life growing up on the Mexico-Texas border. And she incorporated her lifelong experiences of social and cultural marginalization into her work. She also developed theories about the marginal, in-between, and mixed cultures that develop along borders. So a bit about this book specifically, this bridge called My Back was a major event in women's studies in 1981 when it, when it was published. It's, and some people even credit it for starting the third wave of feminism. Um, so with all of that as a setup to set the stage, let's dive in. So we wanted to start with the very first piece in the book, actually, which is called The Bridge Poem. It's by Kate Russian. And of course, this inspired the title of the whole anthology. And this poem is considered really iconic in the in studies of intersectionality. So Jen, why don't you start us off and read the bridge poem? By Kate Russian. I've had enough. I'm sick of seeing and touching both sides of things. Sick of being the damn bridge for everybody. Nobody can talk to anybody without me, right? I explain my mother to my father and my father to my little sister, my little sister to my brother, to the white feminists, the white feminists to the black church folks, the black church folks to the ex-hippies, the ex-hippies to the black separatists, the black separatists to the artists, the artists to my friends' parents. Then... I've got to explain myself to everybody. I do more translating than the goddamn UN. Forget it. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of filling in your gaps, sick of being your insurance against the isolation of your self-imposed limitations, sick of being the crazy at your holiday dinners, sick of being the odd one at your Sunday brunches. Sick of being the sole black friend to 34 individual white people. Find another connection to the rest of the world. Find something else to make you legitimate. Find some other way to be political and hip. I will not be the bridge to your womanhood, your manhood, your humanness. I'm sick of reminding you not to close off too tight for too long. I'm sick of mediating with your worst self on behalf of your better selves. I am sick of having to remind you to breathe before you suffocate your own fool self. Forget it. Stretch or drown. Evolve or die. The bridge I must be is the bridge to my own power. I must translate my own fears mediate my own weaknesses. I must be the bridge to nowhere but my true self, and then I will be useful. That was beautiful, Jen. 
Can you, what are some thoughts as you read that? <laughs> so many. I was laughing at some of these sections because they're so damn relatable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a mix of fury and isolation and sadness. Uh, yeah, and fatigue. And my shoulders were tensing up in memory of a very long period of my life when I thought it was my burden to carry the weight of representation. But I think you wanted to talk about Shereen Moraga's I do. Um, I do. companion piece in a way. <laughs> exactly. Just a, a couple of pages later, Shereen Moraga writes, um, A Bridge Gets Walked Over. And I'd love it if you would read that one too, Jen. Sure. Um, here's an excerpt. Another meeting. Again, walking into a room filled with white women, a splattering of women of color around the room. The issue on the table, racism. The dread and terror in the room lay like a thick, immovable paste above all our shoulders, white and colored alike. We, the third world women in the room, thinking, back to square one again. How can we, this time, not use our bodies to be thrown over a river of tormented history to bridge the gap. Barbara says last night, a bridge gets walked over. Yes, over and over and over again. I cannot continue to use my body to be walked over to make a connection. Feeling every joint in my body tense this morning, used. How does that one strike you? Like a journal entry that, you know, I very might have written as well. And her closing lines, right, reminds me that the bridge I must be is the bridge to my own power. I must translate my own fears, mediate my own weaknesses. I must be the bridge to nowhere but my true self, and then I will be useful. (laughs) They set me free, these words, to explore my own privileged place in this world. I think it sets all of us free in some ways to explore our own place in the world, to explore my own suppositions and prejudices. I believe we each must be a bridge to our own power. Because being that kind of bridge, so she says, yeah, I'm, I must be the bridge to nowhere but my true self. And that's the kind of bridge where nobody's walking over you and your back isn't going to get broken, right? Oh, yeah, I absolutely think so. I, I think, I mean, there's, I, I, I believe that. I mean, there's always so many different ways to interpret poetry and writing. Um, but that's how I see it, right? Mm-hmm. We must first find roots within ourselves. Well, let's, shall we move on to the next part in the book? I'll read a passage that um, was one of the most striking passages, I guess, of the book. And it's one that made me the most uncomfortable. There were There were passages that were just like totally... I mean, it, again, in some ways relatable, even though I am white, I, I had had some experiences that I was like, I, ha- I can imagine what this feels like. This one, I was like, oh, I'm out of my comfort zone. And th- that was really important and positive, a positive experience for me. So I'm going to read this. It's called The Pathology of Racism, A Conversation with Third World Women by Doris Davenport. If I were a white feminist and somebody called me a racist... I'd probably feel insulted, especially if I knew it was at least partially true. 
It's like saying someone has a slimy and incurable disease. Naturally, I would be reactionary and take out my liberal credentials to prove I was clean. And I just realized in this, as I'm quoting, I will be skipping um, a couple of times from one page to another. So this is all from the same essay by Doris Davenport, but I'm not reading it in its entirety. So this moves on to the next page. Quote, if we even accidentally mention something particular to the experience of Black women, we are seen as threatening, hostile, and subversive to their interests. Because of their one-dimensional and bigoted ideas, we are not respected as feminists or women. Their perverse perceptions of Black women mean that they continue to see us as inferior to them and therefore treat us accordingly. Instead of alleviating the problems of Black women, they add to them. Some Black women have at least three distinct areas of aversion to white women, which affect how we perceive and deal with them, aesthetic, cultural, and social-political. Aesthetically and physically, we frequently find white women repulsive. That is, their skin colors are unesthetic, ugly to some people. Their hair, stringy and straight, is unattractive. Their bodies, rather like misshapen lumps of whitish clay or dough that somebody forgot to mold in certain areas. Furthermore, they have strange body odor. Culturally, we see them as limited and bigoted. They can't dance. Their music is essentially undanceable too, and unpleasant. Plus, <laughs> they are totally saturated in Western or white American culture with little knowledge or respect for the cultures of third world people. That is, unless they intend to exploit it. The bland food of white folks is legendary. What they call partying is too <laughs> low-keyed to even be awake. <laughs> oh, no. And, and I have to say, because for listeners, you can't see it. It's awake like a funeral. So too low-keyed to even be like a funeral. <laughs> Socially, white people <laughs> seem rather juvenile and tasteless. Politically, they are, especially the feminists, naive and myopic. Then, too, it has always been hard for us Black folk to believe that whites will transcend color to make political alliances with us for any reason. The women's movement illustrates this point. End quote. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a lot of thoughts about this, and I'll just quickly share a few. I, as a white reader, and I am someone who does claim the you know, the title of a feminist and, and my listeners know what that word means to me, but so she's talking to me, you know, I'm, a, I'm a white mm -hmm. feminist. And, um, so as I'm reading it, I can choose to say like, can I laugh at myself? Is some of that funny? Yes, it totally is. And I can have a sense of humor and, and see myself from a different point of view. I can make that choice. However, I mean, it's also serious criticism, even though parts of it are funny and so then, yeah, again, I, as a white woman, I can choose how to respond to that. I can respond defensively and just immediately think of ways like, well, I'm not like that, or white women aren't like that. And, or I can be humble and ask myself if she's right about any of that criticism. And so I looked at that passage and saw that it was such an act of power for her to place herself in a position where she was central as a black woman. She was primary. And she had the higher ground of advantage where she got to criticize and make a declaration about the other. And I was the other and feeling myself as the other, even just for a few minutes. 
honestly really gave me greater empathy. And it was a powerful exercise for me to have that flipped and realize that it never happened to me before. <laughs> uh, you're really you're really talking about intergenerational trauma. Yeah, that is such an important point to bring up. Right. And and as Doris Davenport, you know, was engaging, you know, a, a, a certain style of writing, I, on the other hand, I could relate to the kind of almost a literal, <laughs> a literal, a literal writing by L- Nellie Wong in the book mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. her poem about longing to be white. And it was titled, When I Was Growing Up. So here's an excerpt from Nellie Wong. She says, I know now that I once longed to be white. How do you ask? Let me tell you the ways. When I was growing up, people told me I was dark and I believed my own darkness in the mirror, in my soul, my own narrow vision. When I was growing up, I read magazines and saw movies, blonde movie stars, white skin, sensuous lips, and to be elevated, to become a woman, a desirable woman, I began to wear imaginary pale skin. When I was growing up, I felt dirty. I thought that God made white people clean. And no no matter how much I bathed, I could not change, I could not shed my skin in the gray water. I know now that once I longed to be white, how many more ways, you ask? Haven't I told you enough? So I was saying growing up, right, and I was the only person of color in a school community My skin color was loaded with a lot of stereotypes that um, didn't always fit me. And in addition to the movies, the magazines, the television, and a global economy that was centered on the appetites of the white American and European markets, there still exists the remnants of colonizing religions in normalizing a racial hierarchy. Mm Mm-hmm. So the next um, passage that I wanted to bring out is an essay called Asian Pacific American Women and Feminism by Mitsue Yamada. She says, quote, as a child of immigrant parents, as a woman of color in a white society, and as a woman in a patriarchal society, what is personal to me is political. These are the connections we expected our white sisters to see. It should not be too difficult, we feel, for them to see why being a feminist activist is more dangerous for women of color. They should be able to see that political views held by women of color are often misconstrued as being personal rather than ideological. Views critical of the system held by a person in an outgroup are often seen as expressions of personal anger against the dominant society. And they'll say things like, if they hate it so much here, why don't they go back? She Mm -hmm. goes on to say, remembering the blatant acts of selective racism in the past three decades in our country, our white sisters should be able to see how tenuous our position is in this country. Many of us are third and fourth generation Americans, but this makes no difference. Periodic conflicts involving third world peoples can abruptly change white Americans' attitudes towards us. This was clearly demonstrated in 1941 to Japanese Americans. We found our status as true-blooded Americans was only an illusion in 1942 when we were singled out to be imprisoned for the duration of the war by our own government. 
end quote. I, I, I mean, I want to ask you what, how this struck you, Jen. I just feel so sad to even ask, but what were your thoughts? Oh, Oh, yes. The Japanese internment camps were, um, were brutal, especially when you realize that there weren't similar camps for German Americans at that time. Mm. Yep. Um, I think the word tenuous is the right word here. You know, for 60 years, Chinese laborers were banned from immigrating to the U.S. Mm-hmm. In the 1800s, Chinatowns were frequently set on fire. Mass lynchings were held and Chinese, along with Native Americans and blacks, were forbidden from testifying in court when crimes were committed against them. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began, there's been a sharp increase of hate crimes committed against Asian American Pacific Islanders in this country. There's daily video documentation of the violence and the racial slurs inflicted on Asians, especially the elderly, which is really mm-hmm. sad. Mm-hmm. At any rate, um, race is a social construct with no science behind it. It's written into colonizers' legal system in the 17th century to justify white landowners being at the top of the ladder and black slaves at the bottom. Mm -hmm. It was also used to justify the mass killings of indigenous Americans. And Mm -hmm. this leads to an essay by Barbara Cameron, Mm -hmm. who is of, who is of the Lakota native tribe. And um, she was born in 1954. She, you know, you and I both picked this one, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And it's titled, Gee, You Don't Seem Like an Indian from the Reservation. That's the title. Mm -hmm. And here's an excerpt I'm going to read. By the age of five, I had seen one Indian man gunned down in the back by the police and was a silent witness to a gang of white teenage boys beating up an elderly Indian man. I'd hear stories of Indian ranch hands being accidentally shot by white ranchers. My hatred for the Wasiku was solidly implanted. Wasiku is their term for white people was solidly implanted by the time I entered first grade. Unfortunately, in first grade, I became teacher's pet, so my teacher had a fondness for hugging me, which always repulsed me. I couldn't stand the idea of a white person touching me. Eventually, I realized that it wasn't the white skin that I hated, but it was their culture of deceit, greed, racism, and violence. And Barbara Cameron and her ancestors have endured acts of greed, deceit, violence, and racism from multiple generations with the influx of European migration to the Americas. And here's another passage that, um, that resonated with me. It goes, articulate, articulate. I've heard that word used many times to describe third world people. White people seem so surprised to find brown people who can speak fluent English and are even perhaps educated. We then become articulate, or as one person said to me a few years ago, gee, you don't seem like an Indian from the reservation. It just seems, yeah. (laughs) I'm just noticing in the next passage that that we were going to talk about that, is this okay if I read it? Yeah, go for it. Just, um, I'm just going to read just the tiny little bit of it, but she talks about how sometimes she'll be like at a party and she mm-hmm. says, quote, I've noticed that liberal consciousness raised white people 
tend to be incredibly polite to third world people at parties or other social social situations. It's almost as if they make a point to shake your hand, which she writes in all <laughs> caps, <laughs> shake your hand, or to in- introduce themselves and then run down all the latest right on third world or Native American books they've just read. That's the end of the quote. And so that's a cause for introspection too. Like she's picking up on like, this person is trying too hard. I mean, and I don't know, but what were your thoughts about that? Yeah, I I definitely think that, you know, if you value meeting new people, right? If you're kind of built that way to want to learn about other cultures, then that comes from a genuine place, right? Like you you genuinely want to meet them and you genuinely want mm-hmm. to shake their hand and and talk to them and get to know who they are and share who you are with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if, you know, the question, maybe, maybe a question to ask ourselves is, you know, who is your audience in this moment, right? Are mm. you trying to impress mm. some other people in the room or what is your goal here? But if our motivation is, you know, is to connect better. I I totally welcome it. Well, that actually, that is a really great bridge to the last point um, that we wanted to bring out from the book. So in an essay called, But I Know You, American Woman, by Judith Moskovich, who's um, Latina and Jewish, she says, quote, I believe that lack of knowledge about other cultures is one of the bases for cultural oppression. I do not hold any individual American woman responsible for the roots of this ignorance about other cultures. It is encouraged and supported by the American educational and political system and by the American media. Note the lack of emphasis on learning other languages and the lack of knowledge even about where other countries are located. Often I'm asked questions like, is Argentina in Europe or Africa? (laughs) And then she says, how can one feel guilt, right? How can one feel Mm -hmm. guilt about screwing over someone, some country she knows nothing about? Right. So it is true that if we don't know anything about a place or a culture, Mm -hmm. then like she says, I mean, why would we care if they get screwed over? If they're not real to us, if we don't know anything, that lack of knowledge about other people, the lack of education really does, it can really hurt. Even if it's accidental, it can cause deep harm. And so that leads us to the end of the episode where we share a takeaway. And I guess maybe I'll share mine first because it kind of is a continuation of what I just talked about. And then Jen, I'll have you have the final word on the episode. My takeaway is for me, and I want to invite any listeners who are listening who do have privilege, who maybe are white or straight or financially stable and able-bodied. If you find yourself with any of those advantages, please join me in saying it's my turn to build the bridge now. I will be the bridge. I will be the one to read the book. I will do the work of education. I will do the work of trying to understand and meet the other person where they are comfortable instead of always asking the one who's already marginalized, who's already encountered trauma, always asking them to be the one to meet me where I am and do that traveling and use their back as the bridge. I feel really excited about the opportunity to do that work and that I will take a turn 
And I, I just feel really humbled and really grateful that these authors did the work of writing and publishing their stories. Mm-hmm. And they made themselves so vulnerable. And so did you, Jen, in sharing your experiences and your feelings. And I feel honored to have been let in um, mm-hmm. to their minds and hearts and to your mind and heart. And um, that's my that's my takeaway is just that I'm committed to making myself a bridge um, and engaging in that way from now on. So I thank you for that so much. Mm. I, that, yeah, I'm so grateful. My, my, my instinct in reading this book is that it is an invitation to white women to help us because our backs hurt. Mm. Right. Um, and again, I, I just want to go back to kind of the, you know, this work here where we were, we're reminding listeners where, where male supremacy hurts all genders, white supremacy hurts all races. Well, thank you, Jen. Thanks for that um, takeaway and that wrapping up the episode. And thank you for everything you shared today. This was such a great opportunity and I I admire your work. I just love you as a person. Thanks for being here today on the episode. I'm so grateful. It's been a real honor doing this work with you, Amy. 